Good morning. My name is Rob Loy. Uh, you're, uh, I think Bolton says that Chris is preaching this morning. Uh, I'm a few inches taller and quite a few years older, um, but I attend here and uh, have attended for quite a while. Um, you know, when Chris called me and asked me, or actually, I guess, emailed me and asked me to preach this Sunday on this text, my first uh, kind of thought was, since it's Luke 2, such a well-known text, that it'd be great to tie it into a Charlie Brown Christmas. Because if you know that show, and who doesn't, you know that at one point during the Christmas pageant, Charlie Brown kind of cries out in exasperation, does anybody know what the real meaning of Christmas is? Or something like that. And Linus says, I do, right? And then he goes out on stage and recites a passage out of Luke 2. So I thought, well, that's perfect. I'm preaching through Luke 2, I'll do that. And that was my plan until two weeks ago when Dustin spoke and did that exact illustration to start his sermon. And I was sitting there with my wife and I leaned over to her and I said, I'm not kidding you, he is actually doing, I mean, almost word for word what I was gonna do. He even said at one time, I'll be your Linus today, which that was my line. That's what I was gonna go with. So um, I've spent the first couple weeks of Advent mostly being bitter at Dustin. Uh, <laughs> because I had to redo my sermon. And I would like to make a point that Linus doesn't quote anything out of Colossians, right? Which is what Dustin preached on. He does out of Luke 2. So it would have made a little more sense. But that's all right, I'm not bitter about it now. I've gotten over that. Um, Luke 2 is an incredibly well-known passage, isn't it? I mean, if, if you're like me, when you think about Christmas, and, or you think about a text in scripture, if you think about Christmas, you think about Luke 2, right? Uh, in my family, we started a tradition, this is nothing unique, I realize, but that when our kids come down, uh, came down to open gifts on Christmas morning, by the way, we don't, we're not part of the easy believism of opening on Christmas Eve, we open on Christmas morning, uh, that before we'd open gifts, we always would read Luke 2. And we started that when the kids were tiny, we're still doing it even though our kids are older. And I thought, you know, as a dad, I thought, oh, that'll be great, because then it'll kind of set, here's the real meaning of what we're doing, it's not just about the gifts. We're gonna read the scripture and it'll become tradition. And I think all I really did was make Luke 2 like my kid's least favorite passage in the Bible because it stood between them and the gifts, right? Uh, so it kind of backfired. But with that, Luke, Luke 2 really is kind of the quintessential Christmas passage, isn't it? And, uh, and today, the fact that we're gonna go through it, I think you could be tempted to think, what possibly could you say that I haven't heard? You know, we've been through this, I've been through this. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you might think I've been through this so many times. What, else, what can there be that's new? And you might have a point there. I don't know that anything I'm gonna say up here today is, is, is gonna be something where you go, wow, never thought of that. But by the same token, Luke 2 is more than just a narrative of the Christ child being born. It is also a, a text that is incredibly loaded with some amazing theology. And specifically, it's absolutely permeated with the gospel. And from that standpoint, and from the standpoint of what we've talked about today, about the wonder of this, I think that it, it is never a bad idea to be reminded of just what this text tells us, not only from the standpoint of the story, but of the gospel that's behind that story. So my goal today is that when we walk out of here, 
will walk out of here with more than just knowledge of a story, but that will walk out of here blown away by the fact that the gospel is here, this is where it all started, this is what it means, and this is what gives meaning to our whole Christmas season. Does that make sense? So that's what we're gonna try and accomplish today. We're gonna do this in uh, this way. This is how we're gonna do it. We're gonna go through the story, all 18 verses, and I'm just gonna make comments about it from the standpoint of understanding the story itself. Then when we're done with that, we're gonna go back and um, try to draw out three specific points all kind of built around the gospel and what it tells us from that, and from that then be able to use that, hopefully, to go into the Christmas season. So everybody on board with that? Does that make sense? I realize you have absolutely no choice, but are you on board with that? Okay, good. Now, we're jumping in here into the middle of a narrative, okay? So let me catch up on the story. Joseph and Mary are two main characters in this, or at least to start out. They are living probably already as man and wife in Nazareth because by this time, where we are in the story, Mary has already been discovered to be pregnant. Now, both Joseph and Mary have been visited by an angel. Both of them understand why she's pregnant, but they live in Nazareth. We know from other texts, not this one, that Nazareth is a small town and kind of considered to be a little bit of a backwater. And while Joseph and Mary understand why Mary is pregnant, probably no one else in Nazareth understands why she's pregnant, other than that obviously she, had, she got pregnant out of wedlock. So it's probably not too far to take, especially when we read about the Matthew passage of the same thing, that they probably aren't living in a really fun situation right now. There's probably a lot of conjecture, a lot of, or I'm sorry, a lot of scorn, a lot of scandal built around the two of them. And by the way, one thing that you can be tempted to do when you read the Bible especially you read something like this, you can think that people in Nazareth all sat back and said, well, you know what? If we weren't Bible characters, we wouldn't buy this. But since we are Bible characters, we believe that this is a virgin birth. Well, that's not the case. There's no reason they would have bought her, the reason for her pregnancy any more than we would, right? So from that standpoint, life may not be great for Joseph and Mary right now. But they're in Nazareth. She's already pregnant. They're together. That's where we pick up the story. All right, so listen now, let's just start going through the text. And, and I would encourage you just to have your Bibles open and your phones open because we're gonna refer to it all the way. Starting in verse one. Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. You know why Luke puts this in here? Luke wants to make sure that the reader understands that this is not some myth. This isn't some allegory. What he's about to relate actually happened in history. So he wants to, he, he specific, that's specifically why verse two is there. That this happened while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Some, there's some, actually some controversy. It may have been before he was governor, whatever, doesn't matter for our purposes. But Luke is specifically saying this is a historical event. These are real people. This really happened. The other thing we can kind of draw from this is where is Caesar Augustus? Augustus is in Rome. He's the most powerful man in the world as we read this story. This is Julius Caesar's nephew, Octavian, who glosses himself Augustus when he ascends to the throne, names a month after himself, right? He decides, I want to I tax everybody and raise money. God uses this to accomplish his own ends because what's God trying to do? God's making sure that his son will be born in Bethlehem because that's what the prophets said. And the way he does that is he superintends the most powerful man in the world 
to do, which, by the way, Augustus couldn't care less what's going on in Israel and Messiah and so on and so forth. He just wants to tax, but we see a sovereign God working out his ends here, don't we? Okay, so now let's go on to verse three. And all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. As part of this census, you have to travel back to your initial hometown. Now, this may have been just something that was the, the case in Israel because of how Israel handled land use and land ownership and those kind of things under the Mosaic law. But in Israel, you had to travel back to your kind of ultimate hometown, which for Joseph and for Mary, who were in the line of David, is Bethlehem. Now, we don't know if Joseph actually had to take Mary with him. It could have been that maybe just the men had to go. But, again, we can conjecture here, she's pregnant. He probably realizes he's not going to make this trip and get back before she gives birth. He's been visited by an angel saying that she's carrying the, the Messiah. So clearly, he's not going to leave her, leave her to do that on, his own, on her own. Not to mention, again, if we're right, that things in Nazareth aren't a lot of fun, then from that standpoint, he probably wants to take her. Now, the timing of all this, from their standpoint, probably isn't great because she's pregnant. Because now they have to get to Bethlehem, which is somewhere 70 to 90 miles away. I, I looked it up, probably four or five different places kept getting different numbers. It was kind of funny. I originally looked up how far is Nazareth to Bethlehem, and I got a Google map showing me it'll drive, take me two hours to drive there. That's not exactly what I was looking for. But it's somewhere 70 to 90 miles, depending on the route they took, which could be anywhere from a four to seven day walk. And of course, she's pregnant, right? So we don't know how long it would take, how easy that was. And by the way, notice what's not in your text. There's nothing in the text about she rides a donkey and he leads it. That's tradition, right? That's how we always see the picture but there's nothing there. All we know is they go. And it could very well be that they walk the whole way, probably in a group, probably in a caravan, but they walk. And again, from the standpoint of the timing, probably not great because she's pregnant, but the other side of it is maybe they're happy as clams to get out of Nazareth, right? You might see the movie, The Nativity. Do you remember in that? They show a scene of them leaving Nazareth and everybody in Nazareth sitting there looking at them like this. And then they walk out and Joseph goes, they're gonna miss us like that. And they walk out, it's a great scene. I didn't do a very good job of recounting it, but it was a good scene. All right, let's go on. Um, verse six. And it came about while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. Now notice, we don't know how long this is. The, traditional, the tradition of that they come into Bethlehem and she's in labor and they're frantically finding a place, that's not in the text. All it says is they get to Bethlehem and sometime after they're there, she goes into labor. So we don't know if this is a month, this is a day, this is a week, we have no idea, all right? And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now here again, where, what does tradition tell us? It's they come into town, she's in labor, they're frantically going to the hotel, this mean innkeeper comes out and says, no way, get out of here, no room, and they end up back in a stable, right? But that's not what the text says. All it says is, it doesn't even mention a stable, does it? It just says she, they, she gives birth, 
She wraps him. Notice she wraps the baby. That probably means there's no midwife present, okay? You guys realize, by the way, how good you're going to be at the Christmas trivia contest for having been at this sermon? Just something to think about. She wraps the child herself, so there's probably no midwife present. It's probably just her and Joseph. Lays him in a manger. So the fact that she's laying him in a feeding trough makes us think that they are in some kind of stable or maybe a cave or something like that. All right? Now, then when Luke says, because there was no room for them in the inn, that doesn't necessarily mean that the stable is where they were living. First of all, inn could mean a lot of different things. Inn could be a a, a room in somebody's house, right? It doesn't necessarily mean it was an inn like we think of it. Secondly, it could be that where they were staying, they had a place to stay, but there was no place for her to deliver a baby. So maybe it was just a matter of wherever they stayed, they had to go find someplace out. Bethlehem is packed with all these people in town for the census, and the only place they could find is this stable cave or something like that. And so she does that. So this could have been a cruel thing. We don't know. But it is notable that Luke doesn't say anything about that this was horrifically cruel and people were mean to him and sent him out here. It could have been that this was the only option there was just because once she started to give birth. There's a lot of, there are a lot of explanations for that. Something else to think about, that if Joseph is in town for this census, presumably there are a whole lot of Joseph's family in town. So if that's the case, you would think somebody would have been willing to take him in, unless, of course, the same family is sort of scandalized by them too, but, you know, you can start to do, go really far, pretty far down the rabbit trail here. So all that to say, we don't know if this is a bad thing that they're having to do this, but it's certainly not what you would expect for a king, right? Okay, let's go on, verse eight. Now, because now the scene shifts. Verse eight, totally, the scene shifts. And in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. The fact that there are shepherds in the field after dark may mean that this is in a warm time of year. I don't know if that's, I'm not sure if that's definite from what I've been able to read, but it may mean that this was in the warm time of year. By the way, December 25th is not Christmas because of, of the Bible. December 25th is Christmas because the church, somewhere around 270 AD, decided, hey, we ought to start celebrating when Christ was born. And why don't we take December 25th, because there are a bunch of pagan festivals that are already there, already there, people already celebrate that time, so let's incorporate that into Christmas, okay? It's not because of anything in the Bible, it's because it was kind of, not convenient, but it made sense to commandeer those dates. So all that to say, we don't know when he was born what time of year, but the fact that the shepherds are out there may do that. Now, the shepherds at this time are kind of your working class guys. These are not movers and shakers. These are not the beautiful people at all in the culture. These are kind of, you know, when you talk about lowly shepherds, that's where that comes from. They're not necessarily disliked, but they are pretty far down the social ladder from the standpoint of, you know, you you don't talk about Anybody who is, everybody who is anybody was at the party, well, the shepherds weren't there. They weren't one of those, okay? Verse nine, and an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. You know, anything, any place in the Bible where you see the glory of the Lord confronting man, man always responds in fear, always. You never see man go, yeah, well, yeah what, what of it? It's never that way, always in fear. And the angel said to them, do not be afraid, 
For behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. The angel says, first of all, it's great how this, this happens. You're going to see both in verse 10, I'm sorry, in verse 9 and in verse 13, everything happens suddenly, right? These guys are just out doing their jobs. It's a day, it's a night like any other. Nobody's sitting there wondering, wow, I wonder if something weird's going to happen tonight. They're just doing their thing. Bam, all of a sudden an angel's there. And something hit me this time as I was going through this. I've always had this picture that the angels are kind of up in the sky, right? But the text doesn't say that. It just says an angel stood before them. So it could have been, and really this would have even been maybe even more intimidating, that they're doing whatever they do, and all of a sudden an angel just standing on land with them, talking to them. And it scares the heck out of them, right? And then the angel says, don't be afraid. And then what he says, I bring you good news of a great joy which shall be for all the people. And what he's really saying, what the angel is saying is, nothing's the same now. Nothing is the same. And, I, and the scope of the announcement I am about to give you cannot be overstated. Because everything is different now. I bring you good news of a great joy which shall be, and then notice, and, and whether the shepherds would have understood this or not, we do, when he says, which shall be for all the people, meaning this isn't just the Jews. This is Jews and Gentiles. This is universal. This is everybody that this news goes to. And then he says, he talks about that the baby, a child has been born for you, and then he says, this will be a sign. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Hey, there may be other newborns in Bethlehem, but only one's in a manger, and that's the one you gotta go find. Well, then after that, the scene gets even more amazing because in verse 13, and suddenly, again, suddenly, there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. All of a sudden, this one angel turns into a bunch of them. We have no idea how many. The fact that Luke says a multitude makes it sound like maybe they're innumerable. There were so many you couldn't count them. And are they all standing online? Are they up in the sky? We don't know. The fact that it says heavenly host doesn't necessarily mean they're in the heavens as much as it probably means they're from heaven, right? So whether they're all standing in front of the shepherds or they're all, we don't know. And it doesn't specifically say they're singing either, by the way, but they just start worshiping. And what's interesting about this scene, and I thought about this this time, is it's almost like after the angel delivers his message, that he calls in all of his buddies and they're so overwhelmed by the message they almost forget about the shepherds because they stop communicating with the shepherds. They start praising. They are overwhelmed by what their creator is doing. And they're so overwhelmed by it and so hit by it that they just start praising and worshiping the, the, their creator. At this point, the shepherds are merely spectators. It's all about the angels and it's all about, the, all about God because of what God's done. And they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. What an amazing sight this had to be. Just absolutely incredible. And again, all these guys were just like, you know, man, I just showed up for work like I normally do. My goodness, look at this. It was amazing. Well, then you get the impression that as suddenly as the angels appear, just about that suddenly, the angels disappear. They go back into heaven. And then verse 15, and it came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, 
that the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they came in haste and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. Now, as soon as, the, as soon as the angels go, they go, we're going to Bethlehem, let's go. Well, it's interesting, we don't know what happens to the sheep, right? Or who the poor sap is who has to stay, right? Like, Bob, you got the short straw, see ya. Everybody takes off. But they immediately go, and they go to Bethlehem. And then here's what's interesting. Look at the contrast between what they just witnessed with the angels and what they go see. Now, the, angels did, or the angel did say, you'll find the baby lying in a manger, but still, they looked at this glorious announcement of this king that's come, of the Messiah that's here. They show up, they see a man, they see a woman, they see a feeding trough with a baby in it. And unlike Renaissance paintings, the baby probably didn't have a halo, right? It looks like a baby, and that's it. And you would think from one standpoint, you would have gone, wow, this is kind of anticlimactic, but yet that doesn't appear to be what they do at all. Because look what they do. This, after they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child, and all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. They go out and tell everybody. So the shepherds being who they are, and think about this, the shepherds are around animals all the time, right? The shepherds are already kind of far down on the the social ladder. So to them, there may not be anything weird about the fact that we just saw angels and now we see this couple and this baby in a manger. So from that standpoint, maybe God knew exactly what he was doing by talking to the shepherds, right? It's also interesting when you think about the shepherds, two of the greatest leaders in Israel's history, Moses and David, were both shepherds, right? Moses, who goes out to work for his father-in-law for 40 years after he leaves Egypt, David, who's a shepherd before Samuel crowns him. And we know that Jesus will later call himself the good shepherd, right? So there's a lot of appropriateness to the shepherds being involved. So after the shepherds see it, 17 and 18, they can't keep the news to themselves. This is so incredible, they go out and start telling people. And everybody who hears them responds because it is just an amazing night and let us tell you what happened to us. And they go out, they can't keep it to themselves. All right, so that's the story. Does everybody feel better, like they have a better understanding of the story, right? And the fact that nobody's nodding is not going to intimidate me. Uh, we'll just keep on going. So now let's go back, and I want to draw out three kind of ramifications or thoughts, three takeaways that we can take with us as we go through this. And now that we have a better understanding of the story. And the first one is this. I want you to see the gospel in the midst of this. And where you see that is in verse 14. If you look at verse 14, what does it say? This is what the angels start worshiping God with. And they say, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. You know why God redeemed us? You probably quote John three sixteen, right? God redeemed us because he loved us. God so loved the world that he sent his only son, right? But you know what's even more fundamental to God saving us than that? And that is to glorify himself. Why did he create everything he created? to glorify himself. Why did he put Adam and Eve in a garden where it was possible that they would sin? To glorify himself ultimately. The Bible tells us that the son was foreordained before the foundations of the world to die, to redeem mankind. And from that standpoint, even more fundamental in some ways 
then God's love for us is God glorifying himself through the redemption. Because nothing in all of world or created eternal history, or in all of world history or created history, is greater for glorifying God than the, redemption, than the redemptive act. And so when the angels say, glory to God in the highest, what they're saying is, what is happening here brings glory to God first and foremost because it is so unbelievable and so amazing. Because the Messiah has come and he has come to save the world and what he's doing brings the ultimate glory to God. So that's the first part of the gospel, that God glorifies himself. But thankfully, it doesn't end there. Because then the angel goes on and says, and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. So the Messiah is going to glorify God and the way he's going to glorify God is by reconciling man to God. That's what he's gonna do. See, one of the things that's happened over the years, we've kind of, um, we've kind of hallmarked that statement about peace on earth, goodwill toward men. We've, we've kind of put it on so many Christmas cards that we've forgotten what it's talking about. Peace on earth does not mean that men will live in peace with each other. It may have that effect, but that's not the ultimate basic meaning. What it's talking about is vertical peace, peace between man and God. And if the Messiah is bringing peace between man and God, what does that presuppose? It presupposes that outside of the Messiah, without the Messiah, there is a state of war between man and God, which has been the case since Adam and Eve in the garden. That when sin entered the world, a state of the, the, the relationship between man and God was broken. The Messiah is coming to restore that, to restore man back to God. So apart from redemption, we're at war with redemption because of the baby in the manger, he's come to reconcile man to God and restore our created purpose. That's what it means. So in that standpoint, you really do have the gospel all in one verse. Glory to God, peace between man and God. All one there. Now implicit in the verse, but isn't stated, is the way that will be accomplished, right, is by the Redeemer dying and rising again, the death and resurrection of the Redeemer. So that's what's implicit. But what we see here is really a one-verse summary of the gospel. Peace between, or glory to God and peace between man and God. And what's great is, from the standpoint of us looking at Christmas, we can say that the gospel was there from the very get-go. These are the angels praising God on the day that Christ was born. The very start, everything is based on the gospel. That's why he's here. That's what, it, what, that's what infuses this story from that standpoint. It's why, by the way, Hark the Herald Angels Sing is one of the greatest Christmas hymns written of all time. What's the first verse of Hark the Herald Angels Sing? Hark the Herald Angels Sing, glory to the newborn king. So that's the glory part, right? Peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. It's lifted right out of verse 14. But it's a four-line stanza of the gospel. That's what that is. Next time you sing that, think about that. That this first four lines, that's, that's what, what we're talking about in the gospel. Well, that's point number one that we see the gospel in here. Point number two, this one's gonna take a little, you gotta think a little more with me, all right? So you gotta have kind of the attention span going. But let's go back to the shepherds. Okay, now we already mentioned that the shepherds are not what you'd call influential people in their culture. 
They aren't movers and shakers. They aren't the type of people who are making an impact necessarily, okay? They aren't connectors. They aren't the people that set the styles type of deal. And yet, so, you, so on one side, you have these kind of humble working class shepherds, and that's very humble. And then you have the baby in the manger, and that's very humble. But then you see this, the scene with the angels, and there's nothing humble about that, is there? That's glorious. That's phenomenal. That's unbelievable. That's God in all his glory. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing about the humble king when you talk about the angels. That truly is the king has come, the Messiah has come, being announced only in, the, in a way that only God could. And yet, isn't there a sense where when you look at this, you kind of go, so what's the point? What is the point of doing this for the shepherds? Because wouldn't you think if you were planning this, okay, I originally had in my notes, if you were God, and I thought that doesn't sound right. So if you were planning this and you wanted to get the word out about the Messiah as much as possible, would you put on the big angel show for the shepherds who have so little influence? I mean, from that standpoint, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But here's the thing. The contrast there between the angels and the shepherds tell us a little bit about our God. Because ultimately what God's looking for in this is not credentials. He's not looking for influence. He's looking for believers. And the shepherds believe. Because notice, what do the shepherds do as soon as the angels go away in verse 15? They say to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. And they go in haste and find the baby. No one is skeptical. No one's asking questions. No one's saying, are you sure you want to do this? Or I don't buy this. I'm not sure I'd go along with this. They go. Now, you might say, well, of course they go. Look what they just witnessed. How hard would that be to believe? You just witnessed a myriad of angels worshiping God. Yeah, you're going to believe. And that's a good point that you bring up. But think through something with me here. Who would you say you would, if we, if we said we're going to plan this our way, and we want to send the message to the people who have the most influence on their culture. Who would it be at this time? It would probably be the religious leaders, right? And what we know about the religious leaders is God didn't send angels to them. He actually took it one step higher. He sent the Messiah, the Messiah himself to them. Jesus came to the religious leaders preaching the truth and not only preaching, but also performing miracles, raising people from the dead, all of which, by the way, when you read through the gospels, the religious leaders don't think he's a fraud or think he's a trickster or a magician. They think he's a rival. And because he's a rival to their way of life, how do they respond? They kill him, they eliminate him. So those are the influential people of the day who actually saw the Messiah, didn't just hear about the Messiah, but saw the Messiah and got rid of him because he was a rival to their way of life. Let's think about somebody else. And I told you, you gotta kind of stick with me on this, right? So we're all getting back to why is it amazing how the shepherds responded and what is God looking for and telling them? But the other part of it is, so, so another person you could talk about is Herod. We know from other texts in the Christmas story that the wise men come to Herod. They aren't angels. But they come to Herod and say, we saw his star in the east. We have come to find the king of the Jews. Herod doesn't seem to doubt their story, but how does he respond? He responds by trying to hunt down and kill the, the baby because he sees it, again, as a rival. 
So all that goes to say that God maybe knew what he was talking about or knew what he was doing by sending the angels to the shepherds because God wasn't looking for influential people. He wasn't looking for kings. He wasn't looking for the religious leaders who had impact. What he was looking for are people to believe. And that's what he found in the shepherds. And from that standpoint, I think the shepherds become a type of those who will someday accept the gospel. Because what is true of the religious leaders and true of Herod? They love the world, they love their place in the world, and they saw anything with God as taking that away from them. And they weren't believers. What were the shepherds? Shepherds didn't care about anything else other than the Messiah was come, Messiah had come. And so they believed. And so from that standpoint, they end up being representative of the type of belief that we required once the gospel goes forth when the Messiah comes, when the Messiah is alive. They become a type of you and me, effectively. People who come into it and themselves, who say this world isn't what it's all, all about. My life isn't all about this world. It is more than that. And I know that I need a savior. The people who accept the gospel. God wasn't looking for credentials. He was looking for belief. Well, let's go on to the last point, third point. And that is talking a little more about the shepherd's response. And this kind of goes along with our theme all morning. And it's in verse 17 and 18. When they had seen this, they made known, talking about the shepherds, the statement which had told them, which had been told them about this child. Notice something in verse 17. It doesn't just say that the shepherds went out and told everybody what an incredible night it had been. Now, they probably did that too. But it wasn't just, it was unbelievable. You wouldn't have, you wouldn't have believed the, the angels and they were all worshiping. We were just sitting there like normal. It was incredible. Just suddenly out of the blue, there's angels, so on and so forth. They didn't just do that. Because what does the text say in verse 17? They made known the statement which had been told them about this child. What's the statement? The statement verse is, is, in, is in verses 10 and 11. And that is, for unto you is born, or I bring you good, noise, good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you, now get this, a savior who is Christ the Lord. That's the statement they're making known. And think about what that statement is saying. It has been born for you, and really for all people, and for you, a savior, one who has come to save us, one who has come to reconcile us to God, who is Christ, what's Christ? That means the anointed one, the Messiah that's been promised from the garden that God first promised to Adam and Eve that goes back millennia, right? So it's a savior who is Christ, and then get this, the Lord. You know what that means? He's God. And so what the angel is saying is, this baby who was born that you're gonna go find is, he is the savior, he is the anointed one, the, the promised Messiah, and he is God in the flesh. God is in the flesh, he has come to dwell among us, he is the one who will reconcile us to God. That's what the angels say. And when the shepherds go and tell others about that, look at how they respond. The people wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. You know why they wondered? Because what the shepherds said were absolutely staggering, mind-blowing. 
blew them away if they had any understanding of it, to sit there and go, are you telling me that God is in the flesh, he is among us, he is the promised Messiah that we have been hearing about forever, and he has come to reconcile us to himself. God is in the flesh, and he is dwelling among us, and we are now can be reconciled to God. That's what you're saying. And the shepherds said yes, and the people were in absolute wonder over that. Friends, there's an element of that that we need. And it's easy, isn't it? It is so easy to read this and go, yeah, that's absolutely right, that's great, but not to really be in awe over it because you've heard it so many times. And it's so easy to just sort of become a little callous to it. And yet the way these people responded, they were blown away by the fact that God has come down among us. See, this is the message of Christmas. This is what this month is all about. This is what Advent is all about. This is what everything that happens this month ultimately is all about. That unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And there never should be a time where we say, that's okay. We should always, if we're thinking the way, with a renewed mind and the way God wants us to think, should be blown away by that because of the love, the majesty, the glory that is behind that. So here's the takeaway today. I want you to read Luke 2 differently. Hopefully you know more about it, but I want you to read Luke 2 and think about it has amazing theology in it. There is the gospel in it. There's gospel belief in it, and then there's the love and the glory behind the gospel that's in it, because ultimately it's about that God became man and dwelt among us. Let's pray, and you'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for, your, for this text of Scripture. Thank you that we can study it together. Thank you for giving us this time together and just the, the enormous privilege of having your word and being able to gather around it. Oh, Father, you came and died so that we can live. You came and died so that we can be free. You came and restored us to you because there was nothing we could do to restore us to you and go into your presence. You are a great and loving God. You glorify yourself, and when you glorify yourself, we benefit, and I thank you for that. We thank you for that. Thank you that you hear our prayer. Father, would you help us to go out of here with a greater appreciation for what the Christmas story really means. In Christ's name, amen.